This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Today's missing persons. We have uh, a gentleman who enters into ch- he en- enters into Namus. His, his case is created there on December twelfth of two thousand eight. He actually goes missing December twenty fifth of two thousand in the Fort Smith, Arkansas area, which is that's going to come up in a second as a question. Uh, that would be Sebastian County in Arkansas. So that's, as of what we're reading, um, that's sort of where it takes place. But we're going to talk about that. He's 37 years old. He's 5 feet 8 inches tall. And he's 165 pounds. Uh, He's a Caucasian male. His name is Kenneth Ray Weaver. And he goes by Kenny. Uh, He has brown hair and uh, blue eyes. he also has a beard in the photos that I've seen of him. Uh, at least a couple of them. I think in one, maybe he only had a mustache. It, uh, Charlie Project has him. There is a Facebook page for him. Uh, something called the 4029 News had an article on him. Um, there's some slight variations in in his story. Uh, if you go over to Charlie Project, they have him also listed as missing on Christmas of 2000. And they say that his uh, clothing is unknown. He usually wears T-shirts and blue jeans. Uh, they say that he wears glasses with gold wire frames and smoke-tinted lenses. Um, I think those are like just photograph lenses. Uh, he has a scar that extends from the right side of his chin down to his neck. He has a one-and-a-half-inch surgical scar on his lower back near his spine. And this is where it gets interesting. Charlie Project has him missing from Pocola, Oklahoma. And they their description says that Weaver was last seen on December 25th, 2000, when a friend dropped him off at another friend's home in Pocola, Oklahoma. It's a town that borders Fort Smith, Arkansas. He may have driven to Fort Smith afterwards. Some agencies state he disappeared from there and he has never been heard from again. 
Both Arkansas and Oklahoma authorities initially refused to accept the missing persons report, with each state claiming that the other had jurisdiction over the case. As a result, an official report wasn't filed on his disappearance for five years. That's a long time, too. We just had another one where uh, there was uh, quite a bit of time in between when he goes missing and when he's uh, reported missing here, just like uh, Tammy's case. Right, but I kind of want to point out that. So in Tammy's case, uh, there was a... Uh, a couple of factors that factored into why she, uh, what the time difference was and when she went missing and when she's reported missing, essentially she was considered to be, you know, like a runaway. In this case, you've got two juris, two, you've got two law enforcement entities n- not claiming jurisdiction over it, right? That's one of my favorite things that happens is when nobody wants to take responsibility and help anybody. This guy is part of that least vulnerable group yeah where they're like this is a grown man and he doesn't have to he doesn't have to show up if he doesn't want to right i always have questions about uh these cases because it seems like the the gap in time because there's not more information, I, I don't know exactly where I want to go with that. But the gap in time always makes me wonder, like, was it purposeful, right? Yeah. Not to mention, you know, when there is that gap in time, I assume somebody went to these agencies and said, hey, we want to report him missing fairly soon after he was last dropped off, right? Yes. And so you've got a situation where you've got one friend dropping him off at another friend's house. Yes. Okay, so that's a couple of friends that would have some good ideas of what's going on, right? Yes. Uh, because you're once you've dropped your friend off, if it, you know that did in fact happen, well, what happened at the other friend's house, and where did they end up? Right. right what right. did he say when he left? Uh, were you home when he was dropped off? So you know, this isn't a what I would consider to be like a who done it. This is a situation where it seems like witnesses to this man's disappearance haven't been or weren't, you know, interviewed at the time. I assume at the time. Now, I just want to make sure I understand. They're saying 2000 and then he's reported in 2005. Somebody finally opens the missing persons case. If you want to hear more about Kenneth Ray Weaver, he actually pops up in the missing persons podcast. Uh, his sister Becky tells a couple different stories about what went on there, and she runs his Facebook page. It's one. It's um. It's run as a, a missing Kenneth Ray Weaver page where you can you can click. She tells a story of. It, it's not just that that he goes missing in December two thousand, Christmas two thousand. He's last seen on Christmas Day. They get him into a couple of different databases from that time period, and now they reference the local police department in Oklahoma, which is Pecola, they reference the Crawford County Sheriff's Office, which is across the border. They reference uh, the Arkansas State Crime Lab having taken a report about him. And then the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation finally took a report about him. But one of the things she talked about there was he would pop in and out of databases at the time. And so 
at any given time, family members could call up to get a, a case status and he would no longer be a missing person. Well, what does that mean? It just means they, they, they decided there was a jurisdictional issue and they took him out. Well, I wonder how much that contributed to like uh, people not knowing what was going on and thinking like he, that this guy was just like chronically reported missing. I I wondered about that myself. And the references, so the family keeps trying, different members of the family keep trying to keep the case in front of police because they think it's suspicious. But what I think they ran into is exactly what you're talking about. There's a 37-year-old man who didn't want to talk to his family, so he didn't come back. Well, I feel like that would be the, especially in 2000, I mean, yeah, that would be the presumption. And it is unfortunate that uh, in a situation like that, you know, he, he was, I assume he was with people he trusted, right? Because you've got a friend and a friend, right? I don't know if she elaborates. I haven't gone on and seen uh, the Facebook group. I do like it, though, when family members uh, add to the story because most of the time uh, they have a lot more to say, right? Yeah. It gives you some specific insights. And I would imagine uh, that that would be like a very rich resource into, you know, the the actual nuts and bolts of what happened. But I don't know. I don't know if, you know, I don't know how close they were or whatever. But, you know, somebody advocating to find this missing person uh, 23 years later, it's something, right? Yeah. Uh, did you glean any relevant information off of there? I know you said that, you know, people can go look at it if they want. I'm just curious if in reviewing it, you saw anything that you felt, you know, really stuck out. From her commentary, I like I backtracked from what she was saying because – this is weird. Nobody like timed this out well, but in June, four zero two nine TV dot com, which is a news source out there, forty slash twenty nine is their uh, is their story. They ran a little article where Becky talks about uh, that's the sister talks about um, Ken. And let's see, Brett Rains had this. He's the multimedia journalist for forty twenty nine on this, and she says it's been over eight thousand days that we've not seen or heard from him. You're, your head tells you after this long, he's not here, but your heart doesn't believe it. And then it describes a little bit about what was going on. Kenneth Weaver is from Fort Smith. Glenn told 40 slash 29 news. It took five years before a family could officially file a missing persons report. And uh, she describes that as Arkansas would say, no, it's Oklahoma. Oklahoma would say, no, if it's Arkansas. And neither one of them wanted to file a report. A lot of families who have missing loved ones along these borders are having the same problems. No family should have to go through that. The investigation and case file rests officially with Pecola police after Weaver's friend reported he dropped the 37-year-old off at another friend's house. The flow of information on the case that goes back and forth across the state line sometimes gets lost in the shuffle, and that's what happened with this case, said Captain Wayne Barnett with the Pocolo Police. Information later revealed that Weaver may have been driven to Fort Smith. Pocolo police have not received any new leads or, or information in this case in more than 10 years. According to Barnett, there were some credible tips that came in, uh, and there's a lengthy case file that has been composed with help from Becky Glenn. Leads that range from he left on his own to go somewhere else to where he had someone done 
harm to him because of a drug debt that he possibly could have owned or that someone had disposed of his body. Glenn started the Missing Kenneth Ray Weaver Facebook page to try and help generate leads. And she says, someday I hope to be able to post that we now know where he's at. We can bring him home and the person who's responsible will get the knock on the door they've been dreading all these years. If someone's hurt him, which is what we suspect, they're getting away with it. And my mom, she's elderly now. She deserves to know what happened to her baby. But we aren't any closer now than we were 23 years ago. And Barnett says, I know that someone in our area or several someone's in our area, they know what happened to Kenneth Ray Weaver. So what I gleaned from all of that is there's some kind of drug suspicion or other type debt suspicion and that there might be a specific set of people involved and they're just trying to make get someone who knows a little more information to come forward. You know, he looks like a really happy guy in the photos. He looks sort of, I don't know. He looks familiar to me. There's a couple of people in my life that like, he's just got that look like uh, the uncle that would take you fishing or go hunting with you. But, you know, he's a 37 year old male whose family is telling you something has happened. And I, well, right. And because we have the benefit of it having of 23 years having passed, right? Right. Um, which I, I say benefit, but I don't know that that's the right word. But the passage of time shows us that, like, here is this case where 23 years later, you've got a family member being an advocate for his missing person situation. That doesn't happen a whole lot. No. Especially these older cases. And so, to me, that says a lot, right? And, yeah, he does look like a happy guy. And um, I get where he certainly wouldn't have been, like, the most important missing persons case at that time, right? Yeah. Um, because he was a middle, well, 37 isn't really middle age, but he was a, a young, healthy, vibrant man who there was no reason for anybody to worry about him as far as, you know, being taken or something. But, you know, when you get into uh, what was being said there, which I've never understood why people would kill over drug debts, but I guess it's to set an example, I, I guess. Um, it's always something like that, right? The motive is always some sort of revenge or money type motive they kind of are intertwined but you know in that case it's somebody that uh with a couple of questions to the right people like you said they would absolutely know who had done it yeah that's how i feel about this that's sort of i even feel like there's a small enough pool of suspects that they could probably walk backwards through it and figure it out which i mean if we're saying that, doesn't that mean they've done it and there's just not the evidence and yeah. the person's not talking? And so this is one of those cases that I've mentioned that confuses everybody where I'm like, it's solved and it's not being worked on, but it's not closed and it's not adjudicated. Yeah, it, it feels very much like that. And I think it's, again, I think it's complicated by the fact that it's one thing that that's complicated with like younger people who are more vulnerable or vulnerable populations. And it's, you lose time when somebody thinks, Oh, he'll show up. Which is true. And, but do you think if 
you know, somehow magically they could have known, look, in 23 years, this guy's still going to be missing. Do you think that would change the outcome? I don't know if it would change the outcome. I think it would change the approach. I, okay, that's what I mean. Like, if, do you if you knew 23 years later this guy is still going to be missing, then I think as an investigator, maybe you do one more thing that that leads you to having like a full blown investigation into this. Because if they're looking at this the way I think, the way it's described in the podcast there and in the news articles, and and there are different news articles over time about this guy, but they're largely at the behest of Becky Glenn, and I presume from what I've heard here that it was family members knocking on the doors to figure things out. If you change that out for a guy with a gun and a badge or a girl with a gun and a badge and they do what they might do now in 2000 into 2001, when he's first gone missing, I think you get different results. Meaning that it's solved or that everybody clams up. I think if it's a guy with a gun and a badge, I think you know more. I, I think I think you get more information. Like, I, I, I don't think – see, that's the other thing about the passage of time. Evidence goes missing. People move. And if you're talking about someone who's been killed over a drug debt, I, I think there's some things to be said both ways where over time people can feel a little more guilty. But if you could observe something in that first 30 days – after Christmas 2000 that made you go, Oh, they killed him. And this is where he, they put him. So if that were to be the case, I don't think this is going to be a case where he's still alive and he ran off. Well, right. Because I mean, you're not, we're not talking about like a disgruntled or we're talking about his sister, right? Not his, uh, you know, disgruntled ex-wife or like, what is the word? Uh, estranged, estranged ex-wife or estranged, estranged wife or even like a parent, because sometimes I feel like there can be contention between parents. Very rarely do you have a sibling speaking up where, well, this is just my opinion. Most of the time, if a sibling is speaking up, it's because they are sure that they didn't just, their sibling that's missing didn't just start a new life. And a lot of times, even when a sibling starts a new life, your sibling will know. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that they would know. And I, I get that impression. I don't think Becky Glenn would put this much energy into it if she thought he went off and had a good life. And she thought that, like, it was possible. Because, so, you know, sometimes in domestic abuse situations where, you know, a wife or a husband's trying to get away from their ex, you know, I could see that person being in the dark, the spouse that is being left, right? Yeah. I know that sometimes I would say young people, but I guess it could be at any age, you can actually cut your parents off, right? Yeah. Um, and not want to have anything to do with them. But it's very rare, in my opinion, that when a, a sibling is speaking up, that there's any sort of estrangement there. Most of the time, siblings that have that kind of removal, they just don't ever say anything, right? Th that's exactly it. So you bring up a great point. Because that's exactly the situation that I would expect if he were the type of guy to go run off, run off and like have a new life. Right. She would just be like, well, he left and I hope he's happy. And you wouldn't have this whole like missing, uh, I don't want to say campaign, but I mean, she's making a, she's making an effort, right. To keep it out there, which to me, I mean, 
really, it doesn't mean that like he more deserves to be found. I just like it when I see things like that because you get more information, only slightly more information, but it seems like he, so he's getting rides places. You notice this, right? Yeah. Okay. So he doesn't have a vehicle or he's not driving a vehicle for whatever reason. Right. And, you know, you can speculate and endlessly on that, but let's just say, so unless somebody eventually took him home, which never comes up, right? It doesn't. Like the, the whole, like I'm thinking he never leaves Oklahoma, but then later somebody makes up an excuse for him to have gone to Fort Smith. Well, especially if they're asked about it, right? Right. Um, because I don't know if they knew or they were told, but, you know, you've only got so many scenarios that can play out here. Um, if he's not where they expect him to be, which is typical of a missing person, right? You've got that first ride to a friend's house by a friend. Well, did that happen? Right? If it didn't happen, then, you know, the friend holds the answer. You don't lie about stuff like that. If it's irrelevant, right? Yeah. So, okay, if the if he did end up at the other friend's house and then there's a suspicion that he went to back to a different place, well, you've got that middle friend there that's, you know, really, he went back. It, he, it was rumored he went back. Well, did he go or not, right? That's where the key to the case is because, to me, from yeah. just what I've heard – it's being, you know, kind of put out there that he went back over there, but that's not really the case because nobody, he wasn't there, yeah. right? Yeah. And in these cases, I mean, it is highly unlikely you've got a scenario playing out like the, like this where then something random happened to him, right? Yeah, and that goes that goes for all the random things, like accident while fishing, hit by a car, abducted by a serial killer, all of those things become less and less likely when you've got people with like sort of strange answers. Well, let me ask you this. Um, this is sort of a unique case and I, and I don't really, uh, you could put anybody in this position and, and think about this. Um, in, in Kenneth Ray Weaver's case, we happen to know he's getting rides from friends. So what if the second friend that he, this is not the story, but let's say that uh, the friend that he was dropped off at, their place let's say that the friend uh said well you know he left and he was going to walk home right now this could be a long walk uh there could be a lot of things that wouldn't happen here would you presume that he would be more likely to get hit by a vehicle or to like foul play to happen if he's walking right like if for some reason instead of saying like he got a ride wherever the last place they mm. said he might have got a ride to was, he was walking. What I'm saying here is like, what if there was some sort of accidental thing here, which it doesn't seem to be the case because there, there's no ambiguity there at the end of him possibly leaving on foot. Nobody said that. I'm just curious because the whole mentality I have about people missing in cars, right? Yeah. If people miss are missing on foot, does that mean, you know... What what's more likely to have happened? A serial killer picks them up, or no, they got hit by somebody who was driving but had had a few too many on Christmas and 
you know, kind of okay. pushed them off in the bushes or drove them and dropped them somewhere. There's a number of things that can happen in that scenario that have more statistical likelihood than being picked up by a serial killer. Oh, sure. Oh, I agree. Like a hundred percent. And like, to me, I take every single one of these little details that come out and, you know, whether they're true or not, you, you take what you can get if you're doing this type of thing. Right. Yeah. And, there's only so many scenarios that play themselves out, right? Right. Especially when you've got a situation where the guy's clearly not at home. He's not uh, in touch with the family like they expect him to be. And you've got some people saying something about, you know, well, I took him over here and I took him over there. And then he just drops off the face of the earth, right? Well, whoever was with him last knows something, about him dropping off the face of the earth. And when the story um, stops abruptly like that without anything else, to me, without an additional story, I don't even see like them that they're trying to cover it up, right? Yeah. So those, those cases are really, really sad to me. This is one of those situations where it is one of the invulnerable groups of people, a 37-year-old uh, man who was... For, for what I know, he didn't have anything that would have made him, uh, you know, more subject to be victimized. And Unless there's some kind of drug thing going on. That does put him in a slightly higher risk category. But he's still a 37-year-old man regardless. Correct. And, and so, I mean, that, uh, I, I guess the drug association, I, I don't really see that as making him more likely to be like kidnapped and victimized. No, no, no. I'm just saying, okay. So if you have a 37 year old man who for some reason, sometime five years after he went missing, you hear rumors that he was potentially involved in a situation where he owed money for drugs or a 37 year old man who five years after he went missing, you hear nothing like that. The one that, that potentially owed money for drugs by virtue of the fact that he owes money, which is a motive and it's potentially about something illegal. It just moves him up a level in the risk category. Okay. I can agree with that. Um, I was actually, when you were saying that I was like, huh, I don't know that I've ever heard um, any sort of case where there is a man uh, that's missing a, mi- a man that's young and healthy that's missing that there isn't some sort of rumor like yeah I mean wouldn't you say that that's typically something will come up they either had like an enemy or they yeah, had there's frequently this- gossip mill stuff that comes out but the question is like is it more on the side of reality or is it more on the side of speculation because we have nothing else? Okay. And that's what I was thinking. I, because I expect to hear, you know, why they've disappeared. Right. 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 And this involves like, you know, a couple of guys with guns and, you know, I would say that whatever the dynamic about uh, drug murders is, I would say that those would be people that wouldn't talk. Right. Correct. And and that's the point. It's like they have something bigger and more illegal to cover up. Right. And so 
I guess, you know, because I've said so many times that, like, if there's two guys involved, one of them's going to be talking. So that might not necessarily be the case with that. Well, right? so, so if I – this has nothing to do with Kenneth Weaver. I want to say that. But if I, if I bring a case to you and it's a 40-year-old man and it totally looks normal, wife, kids, everything's fine. He walked away on Christmas, never heard from again. You think a thing in your head, right? And then I point out it's 20 years old or – 25 years old or whatever, if I then bring you his criminal record and in this criminal record, he has 10 pickups for uh, solicitation of prostitution charges. You understand that even though he's a 40-year-old man and he has a wife and kids, the minute I bring you that and show you these 10 arrests for prostitution charges where he has either solicited or potentially provided services, that puts him in a higher risk category. If that were to happen, yeah, but I don't think that happened. No, but I'm saying like a lot of times when we talk about missing 15 to 30-year-old women, that is a determining factor in what risk category we place them in. If they have some arrests that we know to be true or they have some addiction history that we know to be true or they have some kind of treatment history for, for whatever, that puts them in a higher risk category. In my opinion – you're halfway there when you hear rumors about a drug debt that the family is repeating 23 years later. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I guess I just think about it differently because I expect those rumors, but sometimes they're like you said about the family mentioning it. Um, I don't know, 23 years, you might say just about anything to figure it out. Right. Well, you it might made, even repeat things that you don't feel like has have a basis in fact, right? It made me spend a few minutes today talking about his case, which is sure good, right? Yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, I actually, the very first thing I think of when a middle-aged man has gone missing, uh, regardless of what the rumors are, I immediately think they've either walked away from their life or uh, ended their life. Uh, well, I, I don't see, you know, I don't see a lot of that tied to this case, but I wanted to mention him today. Um, you had put him on a list of Christmas disappearances, and um, I felt like he was an important one to include for a number of reasons. Yeah, I feel like um, this time in doing this particular set of missing people, which is people that went missing right around Christmas, I feel like I almost can see how the way a case, this sounds terrible, the way a case is presented can make all the difference in the world. Uh, yeah, it really I can. I mean, not like, us be, not like us presenting it now, but I'm saying like the way it went into the system, right? Yeah, the way that it gets brought to law enforcement and what law enforcement does with it in the immediate aftermath is, it does, it changes everything. Right. And so uh, that's, you know, obviously I've known, I mean, I've seen things like that before. It just seems like this particular group of, of cases, it's just really apparent. Yeah. Well, I have a, an exoneration case today. It's actually a double exoneration. Uh, and it's an older one. Uh, this, is a, this is a murder exoneration. So on the one hand, as far as demographics go, we have a 35-year-old Caucasian female at the time of the crime. And then we have a 33-year-old Hispanic male at the time of the crime. 
the charges, robbery, kidnapping, attempted murder, murder, contributing factors include perjury or false accusations and official misconduct. It, so it doesn't look like there's any DNA evidence tied to this. The crimes occur in Arizona in 1980. There's a conviction in 1981. And so one of the people doesn't end up sentenced and is eventually exonerated in 1985. The other person is sentenced to death, but exonerated in 1995. And, you know, so there's two people involved here. I'm going to tell one story, but point out sort of who the two people are as we go. Uh, on December 31st of 1980, 43 years ago, three armed men forced their way into a home in Tempe, Arizona. Inside, they tie up Patrick Redmond, his wife, and his mother-in-law. They shoot each one of them in the head. Now, the wife survives, but the mother-in-law and Patrick Redmond die. Based on information that was obtained from a man named Arnold Merrill, who was a convicted burglar who was in prison at the time, police end up arresting 33-year-old Robert Charles Cruz. And they accuse him of hiring the three men to kill Redmond because Redmond had refused to sell his lucrative printing business to Cruz. Okay, so Joyce Lukasik whose husband, Ronald Lukasik, was Patrick Redmond's business partner in the printing firm called Graphic Dimensions. And she also ends up charged in this conspiracy. In exchange for the testimony, Arnold Merrill receives immunity from prosecution, and he's allowed conjugal visits with his wife. Arnold Merrill identifies the, the gunmen as Murray Hooper and William Bracey, who are from Chicago, and Edward McCall, who is a former Phoenix police officer. Robert Charles Cruz goes on trial in Maricopa County Superior Court with Edward McCall. So Cruz's attorney has attempted to sever these two cases. The prosecution claimed that the aim of the conspiracy was solely to obtain control over graphic dimensions. In the summer of 1980, graphic dimensions was presented with a proposal to bid on some potentially lucrative printing contracts with five Las Vegas hotels. This proposal was presented by Joyce Lukasic's brother, Arthur Ross, and Robert Charles Cruz, both of whom the prosecution said had ties with organized crime. The prosecution contended that Patrick Redmond had vetoed the printing contract proposals, and he, the reason he gave for it was because it involved giving illegal kickbacks to the hotels. I often wonder this. I say it all the time, and I never ask people, do you know what a kickback is? Yes. Okay. It's it's money that is um, given off the books, and it's a way for, like, for example, the hotel situation. They wanted 
whoever they're dealing with, they want the printing company that they go with, the person cutting the deal, they want some cash for themselves. Yeah, they're getting payola to basically have facilitated the transaction, particularly if it's a bidding situation or if it's something that involves illegal or illicit activity, it quickly becomes a kickback. Right. So the theory was that Joyce Lukasik, Arthur Ross, and Robert Cruz, they were backing this proposal and they wanted to eliminate Patrick Redmond. Then eventually, Ron Lukasik is like going to be eliminated as well so that Joyce, Robert, and Arthur can take control of this printing business. So the prosecution claimed that Robert Cruz hired Edward McCall along with Murray Hooper and William Bracey to arrange for Patrick Redmond's murder under circumstances that concealed a larger conspiracy by making the murder appear that it was part of a robbery or home invasion robbery at Patrick Redmond's home. The defense denied any existence of a conspiracy to kill Patrick Redmond. They argued that the shootings at the Redmond home were simply the natural consequence of a robbery by William Bracey, Murray Hooper, and Edward McCall. On December 10th of 1981, a jury found Robert Cruz and Edward McCall guilty of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, armed robbery, kidnapping, attempted uh, attempted murder, among other crimes. So on January the 11th of 1982, Robert Cruz and Edward McCall are sentenced to death for two counts of first-degree murder, and then they get a couple hundred years in prison for the lesser offenses. Now, in the summer of 1982, so about six months later, Joyce Lukasik, she goes on trial. The key prosecution witness that links her to this murder conspiracy that's been going on is Arnold Merrill. The defense directly attacks Merrill's testimony. They argue that he masterminded the robbery at the Patrick Redmond home and invented the story linking Joyce and Robert Cruz to cover up Arnold Merrill's own involvement. In support of this theory, the defense attempted to show that Arnold Merrill planned the earlier string of thefts, burglaries, and robberies that had involved Edward McCall. The defense also suggested that Arnold concocted the story of Joyce Lukasik's participation in the conspiracy in order to have something that he could barter with during plea bargain discussions with the state on these cases. The state rebutted this defense charge of the fabrication of Merrill's conspiracy account with a testimony of George Campagnoni, who testified that a few days after the murders at the Redmond home, Arnold Merrill revealed to him the existence of the conspiracy to kill Patrick Redmond that involved Robert Cruz and Joyce Lukasik. On August 4th of 1982, Joyce Lukasik was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder, as well as numerous other related crimes. Her sentencing was postponed when her lawyers filed a motion for a new trial, claiming the prosecution had failed to disclose benefits given to Arnold and George. In December of 1982, Hoover and Bracey were also convicted of murder and other related crimes. So Murray Hooper and William Bracey are both sentenced to death. 
On April 1st of 1983, the trial court set aside Joyce's conviction and they ordered a new trial. The judge found that the state had failed to disclose that it had arranged for payments to be made on Arnold Merrill's car so the vehicle would not be repossessed. The prosecution also had not disclosed that it arranged for Merrill to receive specific prescription medications, including Valium and Secondol, that was not allowed in the Maricopa County Jail, even though Merrill was being held at a secret location. The judge ruled that the prosecution had failed to disclose that it had assisted in the preparation of pre-sentencing reports for Arnold Merrill and for George Campagnoni. The reports the judge held were in substantial part altered to assure that Arnold Merrill and George Campagnoni received certain sentences. So they're participating in this prosecution and they're getting very specific sentences. They basically worked out a plea deal that is not disclosed. Does that make sense? Yes. So the trial judge doesn't address the defense saying that the prosecution intentionally failed to reveal that Arnold Merrill had committed perjury regarding drug dependence. So one of the claims in here is that like he needed to admit to this in order for him, his credibility to be evaluated. And there's a preliminary hearing where, where Arnold admits taking a significant daily dose of Valium for over 20 years, but at trial, Merrill says he was never addicted to Valium. He qualifies his earlier testimony by contending that there was a nine-year period in the last 20 years where he took no drugs at all. In Merrill's pre-sentence report, which the defense uncovered at trial, Merrill had declared that he had been a Valium addict for the last 10 years of his life. So he was trying to get it as a mitigating factor in his own case, but he's lying about it in the other case. That's all Sarah known as trying to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. So the judge finds that the prosecution had participated in the alteration of the pre-sentencing reports in multiple ways. Both of them had admitted they participated in this murder conspiracy, as well as an earlier series of thefts, burglaries, and robberies involving McCall. In exchange for the testimony, they received immunity from any future prosecution for this set of crimes. As part of their plea agreement, Arnold and George both agreed to plead guilty to one count of second-degree burglary and one count of theft. A sentence of 10 years of probation is recommended for George, and eight years in prison is recommended for Merrill. George's pre-sentence report falsely stated he had no previous arrests, no history of drug and alcohol abuse, and no history of mental illness. But in fact, George had a previous arrest for assault and had a history of drug and alcohol abuse. He had also been involuntarily committed for a brief period in a mental health rehabilitation institution where he was diagnosed as manic depressive. The judge said the most misleading statement found in both reports was their characterizations as Arnold and George being first offenders without prior arrest or convictions. Nowhere in either Merrill or Campagnoni's uh, pre-sentence report that it disclosed the existence or nature of their admitted involvement in the Redmond murder conspiracy or the earlier series of thefts, burglaries, and robberies. Even regarding the burglary to which Merrill pled guilty, the report falsely minimized his participation simply to knowing in advance that a burglary would occur. The prosecution appealed the ruling that granted uh, Joyce 
Luxic a new trial. Bracey and Hooper, they also seek new trials based on the same evidence that leads to Joyce getting a new trial, but that judge denies their motions. The judge ruled that unlike Joyce, there were independent sources of evidence sufficient to convict them. Bracey and Hooper, William Bracey and Murray Hooper, they don't get a new trial from all of this. On October 6th of 1983, the Arizona Supreme Court reverses Robert Cruz's conviction and they remand the case for a new trial. They rule that because Robert Cruz was tried together with Edward McCall, the jury had been prejudiced by testimony regarding Cruz's alleged mafia connections. And in November of 1984, the Arizona Supreme Court upheld the ruling granting Joyce a new trial. So in April of 1985, Joyce goes on trial for a second time, and on May 10th of 1985, there's a mistrial declared after the jury deadlocks, and they're voting 10 to 2 in favor of acquittal. She goes on trial for a third time in the fall of 1985, and on December 1st of 1985, Joyce is finally acquitted. Robert Cruz ends up going on trial twice in 1987. In both of those cases, mistrials were declared where the juries were unable to reach unanimous verdicts. At those trials, Joyce testified as a defense witness that Merrill, Arnold Merrill, whom she had known since she was a teenager and had dated for a time, had been known as Aesop because he liked to fabricate stories to make himself a bigger person. By that time, Luke had changed her last name to Joyce Dow. She and her husband had divorced in 1986. At his fourth trial in 1988, Robert Cruz was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death for a second time. On July 29th of 1993, the Arizona Supreme Court held that Cruz's equal protection rights were violated during his fourth trial because during jury selection, the prosecution excluded three Hispanic jurors from the panel based on their ethnicity. Before his fifth trial, a special prosecutor who was hired to try the case was accused of trying to bribe two inmate witnesses to testify against Cruz. On June 1st, 1995, a jury finally acquitted Cruz. Jurors later said they didn't believe Arnold Merrill, who was still the prosecution's key witness. In November 1997, Cruz disappeared not long after his cousin, Chicago organized crime hitman Harry Aylman was convicted of murder and sentenced to prison. Robert Cruz was last seen hanging Christmas tree lights on his suburban Chicago home. His body was found buried in an unincorporated area of DuPage County in March of 2007. In November of 2022, Hooper's lawyers were unsuccessful in obtaining a new trial and Hooper was executed. Sorry, that's kind of wrapping all of that up. Lots of Christmas ties in this one, but not a very happy story. This reads like some kind of weird telenovela or like mob movie, doesn't it? Um, I feel like, uh, I don't think it was intentional, but like they couldn't have masked the corruption in plain sight any better than they did here if they tried uh, because it's so confusing, right? Yeah. Um, Cause basically 
I don't know what the ties are between all of these people behind the scene, except um, just sort of on its face as far as um, Joyce with her brother. Right. And then, uh, so Arthur Ross is is Joyce's brother. And then Cruz, who is supposedly this mob guy, he wants, he's trying to make a deal with Joyce, Joyce's husband's partner in their business, right? Graphic dimensions. Okay. And so right from the very start, I see these as two distinct groups of people. Actually, I guess three distinct groups of people because the victims, right? Um, So you've got the victims um, and then you've got uh, Joyce and Arthur and Cruz. And then you've got Edward McCall, William Bracey and Murray Hooper, right? Yes. So, those are a different group. I I don't I don't know what happened. I don't know how it happened, but I honestly feel like this was plucked out of left field. Uh, all of it was, as far as um, involving uh, Joyce and Ross and Cruz, because to me it seemed very very clear that Murray Hooper, William Bracey, and Edward McCall. We're just doing a run-of-the-mill robbery. Uh, yeah, I think there's more to it. So for anybody that like wants to go check this out, there is actually, believe it or not, a television miniseries from like 30 years ago. And I think you can still watch it on Turner Classic Movies. It's about this case. It's called False Arrest, I think. And it's got a couple of big names in it. I think that there was an organized crime tie in all of this that didn't like Patrick Redmond because he didn't want to do the whole kickback scheme, but it has nothing to do with Joyce or Robert. And if I, if I recall correctly, and I tried to look all of this up, but like these people sort of fade from history in the nineties and nobody wanted to remember them again. I think everybody in this case is now dead as far as the, the actual convicted people. I think they have all passed away. Okay, this is going to sound, because I've already, because I've separated this in my mind the way that I have. This may sound kind of dumb to ask, but like, is it the case that, because the allegation would be that Arthur Ross, who is Joyce's brother, and Cruz, who has ties to the mob, they hired these three guys for whatever reason to actually it's because they want to potentially take over the business from Joyce's husband and they have to get rid of Patrick Redmond to do that. Right. Yeah. Like that's, okay. that's the idea. Okay. So in the event that this occurs and you can tell me whatever you know about this, I, I don't care one way or the other, but in my mind, I've never really heard of a situation where you hire where hit men have been hired as opposed to a hit man. I have heard of those situations where it okay, so typically what happens is a hit man is hired and then a scheme is set up or set in motion and you end up in a situation where you it's almost like a house construction. You hire a contractor, he hires subcontractors. Does that make sense? I guess. I mean, just to me, that's that's so many more people involved, right? 
Yeah, it is so many more people involved. There are people tangential to this. When I, uh, I'll say it this way. When I go through and read the list of names of witnesses in the court documents for this case, some of the people involved appear to even have, like even the people on the fringes, not, so not Robert Charles, Robert Charles Cruz and not Joyce, but some of the other people that appear in here, they are later accused of being hitmen themselves. Like the witnesses. So right. I think everybody in this case is, is dead and Hooper was the last one. I have never seen a case this involved that goes to trial the way this did have this many hitmen. I think the idea was to make people think they hadn't hired a hitman. I, I can't figure, I don't even see where the motive um, being set up the way that it is. I don't see why if they legitimately wanted to cut this deal with the hotels that wanted kickbacks, um, I guess there could be some sort of motive there. Like if there was some sort of overarching, like if you don't get us these kickbacks, you're going to have a problem type situation. I don't see why if Ross and Cruz wanted to have these contracts with these hotels, they didn't start their own business. I'm with you on all of that. Like, I don't know why this happened. I Like, I don't think they wanted to compete with anybody. I don't think they wanted, like, I, I, for some reason, they just decided that Graphic Dimensions was in their site and they were going to own that company. Right, except I don't think any of that really happened. I, I honestly don't. I don't see how on earth that even began to make sense to anybody. Well, I'm with you on that part. And when, when I look at the whole thing, I, I tend to just be kind of going with the story. Ultimately, I think like, I think Edward McCall was the one who was like hired and that's the cop. Who do you think hired him? I think he's hired by uh, Arnold Merrill. I don't know why. I think it has, I, I still think that like, okay, the graphic dimension thing happened. And Patrick Redmond does say, I didn't want to have anything to do with the kickbacks, like in the summer before he dies. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, okay, that, and that's fine. I don't see how that turns into like him being murdered. That's crazy. Well, how do you get all these people tied together? Well, I don't know. And so to me, um, it seems like, I don't, I think Arnold, Arnold Merrill was just trying to, I think that he was an informant to somebody and they're like, look, dude, we need some information here. Right. He just, he basically told a story of fiction. That's what it sounds like to me. I could be wrong about all this. I just, I don't see where, um, the, cause no matter what, nothing about killing, uh, Redmond trying to kill his wife and then her mother actually being killed. Nothing about that suggests like we're going to successfully take over the business from Joyce's husband by doing this. I, I am with you on that. I think it was more of a, I don't know, man, it could, you're right. It could be complete BS. I see this as two completely different groups of people, and I, I don't know why, but I, I do think that Murray Hooper, William Bracey, and Edward McCall, I think they did it. 
I think they did it for their own reasons, right? Yeah. That's another thing with like a hit. Do they take out families? I, not typically. Um, right. There's Usually no children here, but but yeah, like not typically. Okay. And so the thought behind it is that's a lot of collateral damage for a far-fetched hostile takeover. Okay. Yeah. When at the end of the, now, you know, like I said earlier, maybe there's some other details of the plot line we're not getting, but ultimately Joyce and Cruz are exonerated. And uh, I feel like it's like Cruz's involvement with the mob speaks for itself and his demise, but that's neither here nor there with regard to the story. Uh, one thing I'm sure they mentioned and I've missed, what happened to Ross? Arthur Ross? Yes. In terms of this story or life? Uh, like, is he prosecuted? Arthur Ross becomes a non-entity pretty quickly after this. And I- All right. And so in the event that that is the case, right? So Ross is the connection, I assume, the way it's told, between Joyce and Cruz. I would have to go hunt that down. Now, okay, so first of all, you can go down a rabbit hole here. And I have read a lot of information on this case. There was there were sprawling lawsuits that came out of this case. Uh, there was, at one point, the wife, uh, Redmond's, uh, William Patrick Redmond, his wife survived. I'm not naming her here because she's changed her name. At the time, I, her name was Marilyn back then, but I don't mm-hmm. think she has anything to do with Marilyn or Redmond anymore. She filed like a $360 million wrongful death suit against a bunch of people. Like there were like a huge amount of people. And I don't actually know what happened to her. And I don't know what happened to Arthur Ross. Now there's an Arthur Ross that gets executed a few years later, but not for this crime, for a different crime. Is it in Arizona? Yes, yeah, in Arizona. It's a it's for a crime committed in 1990. Um, if you look it up, it's going to be, I think he killed a real estate agent. I don't like, I'm, I'm recalling from memory, having, you know, read a lot about this case over the years. Uh, it, there are some absolutely like fascinating stories about how much the lawyers cost in these cases that you can go out there and read. If you, um, if you Google Joyce's name, her last name is spelled Lukezik, L-U-K-E-Z-I-C. And if you start like looking at like all the money that went into these trials on both sides, this, this whole thing has organized, organized crime written all over. But I'm with you in that I didn't understand a lot of this. Well, and I feel like that is a way to, I, I don't know if it was intentional or not. I would say that this group of characters that was more likely just sort of just such a bumbled mess that it was unintentional, but it was like corruption in plain sight, right? Now yeah. you end up like much, much later on Cruz's fifth trial before it starts. You've got a special prosecutor trying to bribe witnesses to testify, right? That's how far the case has fallen. Yeah. Which is, it's so incredibly wrong. Uh, all of it is so incredibly wrong. He was actually sentenced to death twice, right? Yes. And ultimately he's acquitted. Um, how does that even happen? Well, 
Well, I was going to ask you, do you not walk away from this case thinking, I wonder if like maybe of all maybes, maybe everybody in this case is guilty. Uh, I'm not uh, saying no. they all are. You don't? I, I, I don't because I, so what bothers me is, okay, when a case happens in time, right? Like when this happened to the family from that point, nothing changes, right? All the, the case is what it is when it happens. And so how is it that during five trials, you go from, you know, two guilty verdicts and sentences to death for this one man, right? For Cruz up to being acquitted. Yeah. Okay. The case is the same case, right? Yeah. I I feel like there's a, and I don't, I haven't read through like every part of the trial and it's probably impossible because he was ultimately acquitted uh, to actually even find the actual uh, meat and potatoes of the trial, right? The uh, trials. This is a unique case and you can do that. Oh, okay. So the transcripts are available. Yeah, the transcripts are available and they're odd because you have, I think, five different sets of, like if you look at it overall, there's like five simultaneous trials going on of different sets of people and the other trials appeals include elements of the previous trials. So they're attached to those trials in terms of like case law websites loop them all in together, even though some of them end in acquittals. That's rare. Uh, Right. You're right. Um, Okay. That makes sense to me, but you have to wonder when you start. um, Well, this is the exoneration summary for Joyce, but like when it starts with based on information obtained from a convicted burglar who was in prison at the time, right? Yeah. Immediately makes my ears perk up. There was independent information that seemed to be available to link this, the one group of three, which is Murray Hooper, William Bracey and Edward McCall, right? Yes. Okay. And, the inf- the is that an informant or a snitch that the guy that's in prison for burglary? <laughs> He's an informant. You're talking about yeah, Arnold Merrill's an informant. Okay, he is the one who's starting this mess for the other three. Or I guess Arthur Ross isn't charged, but he's starting it for Cruz. Uh, I don't know if like Cruz got under the hot seat and he was like, oh yeah, Joyce made me do it. I don't know like what happened there. Um, but he is the, he's the part that brings them into it. Right. Right. I imagine because it was on, it has to be on behalf of one of the other three who are independently linked to the crime for some, there has to be a motive there for them to be like, no, we didn't do it. It's them, right? Yeah. Uh, there, I don't see a world where this actually all comes together the way they presented it. I can't believe that it went through so many ju- juries with all the different trials. Um, I would have had trouble deciphering the three men who... Uh, Bracey and 
McCall, they were sentenced to death as well, but they died in prison before they were put to death. I believe so, yes. Yeah, that's that's what it said when because uh Murray Hooper was just put to death last year. Yeah, so Murray Hooper was uh that that's how I was gonna end the episode. So he was put to death in November of 2022. He actually said for the last 40 years that he was innocent. And the Intercept has a pretty big article, the root covered him. You can go out and read a very extensive write-ups about whether or not uh, Murray Hooper was innocent. He said that you're right and that this was all bullshit and that nobody knows anything about this. And he said that he, he was innocent. Um, he said it the whole time. He is the last person alive that like was convicted in this case. The, and obviously he was finally sentenced to death. It's been 40 years. His last words were, it's all been said, let it be done. Don't cry for me, don't be sad. It took roughly 15 minutes to uh, to kill Hooper by lethal injection. And, you know, no matter how you look at this, you may be the closest I've heard to, like, adding a voice of sanity in all of this, which this could just all be bullshit. Well, I have to say that I, uh, what I was going to say about that was having those three men be sentenced to death with the just incredulous case uh, that was presented. I assume across the board, except for the instance of having his cake and eating it too, right? Right. Um, I feel like as a juror on any of those trials, having just seen sort of the, the, the narrative and the outcome, there is no way to decipher what's credible there. Oh, uh, yeah. Like I thought, and typically what happens with all of this is if, if I can dig into 2,000 pages of court documents like this, I can give you a really good idea of what happened. This case, the deeper I dug in these court documents, the less I know about this case. Which isn't good. No, I, you know, on both sides. And, and I'm not... Like these people are exonerated. That's the whole point. They get home for the holidays. There's a lot of holiday ties to this episode that we just did. I will say this. There are so many corrupt connections to this. I, I cannot sort it out. And I do not think under the best, cir- uh, best circumstances with the passage of time that this case got any clearer. It got muddier the further I go. And this is the only case we have out of all the cases that we're covering for the holidays that I look at it and I go, I can't tell you who did what. But you would agree that logically uh, what was presented and the outcome doesn't really make sense, right? It doesn't make sense at all. I just was going along with it because when people read about it, that's what they're going to read. So I, I, I've given you exactly what I got from this case, which is... Here's what everybody says, and it's in. All, it's not just the mainstream media. The deep dives here don't make sense. There's there are questions brought up in Murray Hooper's case within the last two years. How is that possible? He's been sitting there for forty years, and people are wondering about cross racial misidentification by eyewitnesses and making a really good case for it. I, <laughs> well, I, I'm just saying, I it's very weird that it's a it's hit men like multiple killing you know having a hit that involves husband wife and mother right 
yeah, that's that, a weird it does. situation. It makes it it make it makes it a very unique situation, and and I think that's part of the problem with it is there's not anything to compare it to in terms of like when's the last time this happened, so that we can see what the motives might be. Right, but um, if you think about a situation where you've got a robbery, now most of the time robberies uh, are motivated by the desire to rob someone, right? Um, not kill them. And so that makes me think, well, you know, I can see three guys robbing a place, right? Well, um, I'll just say this, that some of the people that were convicted here were linked to other murder for hire. Uh, the ones that remain convicted? Yeah, like uh, Bracey and McCall, I think, are both linked to other murders for hire. I don't know about Hooper. Right. And, you know, okay, I, I gotcha. But it's a weird situation. I guess maybe, okay, so think about this for a second. Uh, because of the thought of if the original motive is actually a thing, uh, they wouldn't want the wife to have a claim in uh, his stake of the business. Oh, well, then I'll buy some of that stuff if that's what you're trying to say. But the mother-in-law doesn't make sense. Unless, She's just a witness. Yeah, witness. Um, yeah, I don't know. Or I don't they know. don't know who she is. You know what I mean? Like, she's there, and it's like, oh, my God, there's another one. You know, like, we'll, we got to tie her up, too, and, and do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. But I could see that with well, – but the wife ended up living, right? So well, it yeah, didn't even matter. Yeah, the wife lives. And, you know, it, all of the business side of it is irrelevant anyways because, you know – I don't know what happened to Graphic Dimensions. I did try and figure that out. There's a couple of things about this case, like in addition to what you're saying, that like I never fully get to the bottom of them and go, well, that makes sense. It, it doesn't make sense. But yeah, this is, um. so I would say that this would be like a really cool uh, like Netflix original series. It's already been one. Uh, my understanding is this is based on Joyce's book that she wrote with a guy named Ted Schwartz. Um, I'm recalling that just off the top of my head as I kind of wrap this up, uh, it is called False Arrest. So it's called False Arrest. It's called False Arrest from 1991, and I, I believe it is based on Joyce's book. Uh, you can check that out. Um, there's a lot that you can Google on this case. It's a fun read. I will warn you now, it is a deep, deep rabbit hole in terms of court documents. And to be quite frank, they don't match or make a lot of sense. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely um, – it, it is one of the most interesting true crime puzzles. I wish I was more into organized crime because I feel like I could get to the bottom of all of this. But I'm not – I don't do mob stuff. Do you do mob stuff? Like research-wise, do you do mob stuff? It comes up every now and again, but – I'll briefly touch on something if it's like a missing person or like uh, like an unsolved murder. But for the most – I feel like mob stuff is like highlighting – adult bullies that if they were uh like kids they'd be in detention all the time i you know that's a pretty accurate description you know i don't even get into like i tried to watch like the sopranos and stuff and i've seen it but like yeah i've never watched that i mean to me it's just men i mean just it's i guess women could be involved as well but the way i see it is it's a bunch of men all trying to win the pissing contest.
Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com and you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys a a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the the Crime XS code there. Um, You can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, 
Cure hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use TrueCrimeXS, that will get you, uh, at Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll give you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. 
Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era 
as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several new eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all top of the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing, not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime access. You can also use the code true crime access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code true crime access.